0: is Linda, and this morning I was asked to preach about forgiveness. Forgiveness is a great topic. I'm a big fan of forgiveness, and yet it is very complicated for me to think about the topic of forgiveness in the context of a church. And I want to tell you a little bit about my story to help you to understand why that might be. You had a chance to tell one another a bit about how you grew up and what your religious upbringing was, so I'll tell you a bit about mine. I was actually raised Episcopalian when I was really young, and then when I was in seventh grade, I was born again, and I joined another church. I joined an evangelical church. This was 1991. Anybody know, anybody have a sense of where I might be going with this? This is the beginning of the purity movement. Anybody know what I'm talking about here? Yeah. For those who don't, this is a movement that was born out of the white evangelical Christian church, and the attempt was to protect young people from AIDS and from STIs and from teen pregnancy by so thoroughly shaming them (laughs) for their sexuality (laughs) that they would definitely not have sex before marriage because they would be sexless. Right? They would not think about it. They would not feel sexual feelings. They would not make sexual choices. And then, all of a sudden, they would get married, and they would flip their sexuality on like a light switch. <laughs> yeah. So the cornerstone of this teaching is that there are two types of people. There are those who are pure, and there are those who are impure. As a young girl growing up in this movement, I learned that I could lose my purity by having those sexual thoughts and those sexual feelings, definitely by making sexual choices, but I could also lose my purity when someone else had a sexual thought or a sexual feeling or took a sexual action toward me because I was said to have inspired it by the way that I dressed that day or the way that I walked or the way that I talked, whatever it was about me. This purity movement became a purity industry. Anybody remember purity rings? Yeah. Raise your hand. Did you wear a purity ring? I got a couple. Of, oh, yeah. That was a... That was a <laughs> You're like, high in the air. Yes. Uh, purity pledges, where you sign a contract and promise your virginity to God. Yep. Got a few there. Yep. How about purity curricula? Learning it, uh, you know, in youth groups, things like True Love Weights. Books, yep, Christian pop music, right? All kinds of things. There was a constant litany of these messages. There were even purity-themed Bibles. Okay, this is a big one. Did anybody have a purity-themed Bible? You did? Oh my gosh, you're the master of the hand-raising today. (laughs) Well, so to give a little context, or do you want to tell us what a purity-themed Bible? No, I'll do it. Okay. (laughs) Okay. So, a purity-themed Bible is a Bible, in, what, in one of the cases, that has 60 extra pages added to it about the importance of your purity, like advice, like avoid the horizontal. So, just imagine you've got about a sixth of your Bible that is about the importance of your purity. Just try not to equate your spirituality and your sexuality. That was the context I grew up in. So being pure was very important to me. And I was very chaste in many ways, only kissed a boy. But I was constantly being perceived as not chaste. In fact, I was often pulled aside and told that I was a stumbling block. Yes, remember this term? Anybody who grew up in this world? Literally a thing over which men and boys in particular would trip on their pathway to God. And there was always some new reason that I was a stumbling block. I would be very proud of myself because I would be wearing a sufficiently long dress or shorts in a way that was very uncool. Right, (laughs) But I would be like, but at least I'm pure. And then it would be like, but it sure does dip down a little bit too low in the back, or those tank top straps are too thin, or the way that you're talking to the boys is pretty flirtatious, or whatever it was that day that made me feel like it didn't matter how much good I did because I was bad. And ultimately, this is one of the big reasons that I ended up leaving the church altogether which was remarkably painful for me, because it was everything to me. But I felt like now I would be free to be my authentic self, I'd be free just to walk down the street and be who I was, and not hate myself, and not experience shame, and not experience anxiety, and not experience fear. And that was not the case. I had actually so deeply internalized these things that I still wasn't free. I was now shaming myself for them. And I had moved to New York City, or to the New York region. What I had thought was New York City, coming from the Midwest, and realized was Westchester. <laughs> they said it was a, just a 20-minute train from New York City. And I thought, that sounds like New York City. But anyway, I'm here in the New York region, and I feel completely alone. And I'm in this secular world. I'm taking pregnancy tests, though I'm not having sex. I'm having so much sexual anxiety that I'm scratching myself until I bleed. My eczema is coming out. And I'm feeling broken and, like, I will never have a healthy relationship. And I'm going to my secular peers in New York, and I'm saying, I feel like something's really wrong with me. And they're like, Yes! (laughs) Yes, yes, we agree. So I did something really risky, which is, I called up my girlfriends that I'd been raised with back home in my church youth group, and I told them what I was experiencing. And I said, I can't be the only one. Is anyone else experiencing this?" And that was the moment that changed everything, because one by one, in these secret phone calls, I started to hear stories that were my story. You know, it turns out I wasn't the only one taking pregnancy tests, So she wasn't having sex. I wasn't the only one with anxiety so extreme. Some people were having panic attacks, going to the hospital. So eventually, I moved back to my hometown, and I spent a year interviewing every girl I'd grown up with in my youth group, who I could get a hold of that year, and that became the beginning of 12 years of interviews around the country, in which I primarily focused on interviewing people who were raised as girls in white evangelical churches like mine, but not exclusively. A lot of people have been touched by the purity movement, and by the gender and sexual control that is the foundation upon which the purity movement is built. I talked to a whole lot of people with a whole lot of different experiences. Some people were still part of the evangelical church, whereas others would never want to step foot in a church again. Some people had waited to have their first kiss at the altar, whereas others were having sex before marriage. Some people were part of the LGBTQ community. Some people were survivors. A lot of differences among us. And yet, in each of these categories, I heard stories of sexual shame, Anxiety, fear, and even PTSD like experiences. Like some of those things I talked about the pregnancy tests, the fear that something horrible was going to happen. Because didn't I hear something horrible was going to happen? Right? So, eventually, after all of these years of interviews, I wrote a book about my experience, started a nonprofit about it, and literally that came out about a year ago. And a day has not gone by since that I have not received multiple messages from people who have said, I grew up in the purity movement, I had no idea, I thought that I was just broken and that that was the rest of my life. And now I realize that I can actually heal. Meanwhile, my parents still live in the same town, still go to church with many of the people that I grew up with and have to deal with other responses. (laughs) Mm. My mom was recently pulled aside by someone from my childhood church who said, Gwen, her name is Gwen. She said, Gwen, I don't doubt that what your daughter Linda is saying is true, but my problem with Linda, (laughs) great way to enter into a conversation, My problem with Linda is that she hasn't forgiven. Now, this woman has never met me. She has no idea whether or who or what I have forgiven or have not, but she felt that she could say that because when she says, I haven't forgiven, what she means is I haven't stopped talking. How do I know that? Because those who have been hurt by the church are often silenced with this line. Told that they are unforgiving. Instead of owning what the church has done so often, they say, actually, don't look at us, look at them. Do you see them? They haven't forgiven us. Forget that us part. Just look at them. So I actually have a friend who, uh, before she goes into a church, she'll actually read the mission statement of the church in advance. And the reason she does this is because she's looking for key words. Some of those key words are grace, mercy, forgiveness. If she sees them, she won't go into the church. (laughs) because she has seen too many times churches use those words to harbor sexual predators and to maintain abusers in positions of power, authority, and access. Because she has heard survivors be told that they have to reconcile with those who hurt them if they want to be forgiving, with apparently no thought given to their re-traumatization in that process. And because she's heard congregations be told, you can't talk about what happened here, you can't complain about the fact that this person is still in leadership, because that would be unforgiving of you. Apparently, no thought given to the fact that that continues an environment of danger for people. My friend is a survivor, so she has to be careful not to go into places that might re-traumatize her. And she has come to see those words as red flags. So it's complicated for me to talk about forgiveness in the context of a church. Where sexual violence in particular is often spiritualized, it's called a sin, not crime. It's called sex, not violence. Where, the ethos of the purity movement is used to explain it. What did she do to deserve it, to inspire it? Where sin leveling happens. Sin leveling is when two sins, or I'll put that in quote are put next to each other at equal level, like the sin of not forgiving your perpetrator and the violence that your perpetrator um, harmed you with, right? sin leveling, where these things are far too common. It's complicated for me to talk about forgiveness in the context of a church when my youth pastor was convicted of sexual enticement of a 12-year-old girl after having been forgiven and moved quietly along from two other evangelical institutions. It's complicated for me to talk about forgiveness in the context of a church. When I went back and read the court records on my youth pastor's case, and I found a letter that he wrote to one of his previous victims and to her mother, in which he says all kinds of problematic things, but one of them is, he encourages them to forgive him, not for him, but For all of us. And then he adds a PS, literally a PS. Thank you for keeping this between the pastor, board, and yourself. It's complicated for me to talk about forgiveness in the context of a church. When after charges were pressed at my church, we had a big meeting in which my youth pastor joined the all-male leadership team because only men could have that level of authority, right? On the stage, and my youth pastor was embraced and told, we forgive you. We forgive you. We forgive you. And then the congregation was told to never speak of this, because that would be gossip, and gossip is a sin. (laughs) There was actually a mother in that audience who told me this story. I wasn't there for this meeting. And she was like, but what happened? You didn't tell us in that whole meeting what happened. All you told us is he's forgiven. I have daughters. So she went up and she said, please tell me what happened. And they said, we already told you that that's gossip and that's a sin. So, I was asked to preach on forgiveness. (laughs) And then earlier this week, I was given the parable that I was to use. And I read it, and I said, crap. (laughs) (laughs) All right, let's read it again together. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him ten thousand bags of gold was brought to him. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all he had be sold to repay the debt. At this, the servant fell on his knees. Before him he said, Be patient with me. He begged, and I will give everything back. The servant's master took pity on him, canceled the debt, and let him go. But. When that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred silver coins and he grabbed him and he began to choke him. Pay back what you owe to me, he said. His fellow servant fell to his knees and he begged him, be patient with me and I will pay it back. But he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. And when the other servants saw what had happened, they were outraged and went and told their master everything. Then the master called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said. I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all that he owed. Upon first read, this feels like a pretty simple message. a blanket forgive. After everything I've seen, what am I supposed to do with that? So I went back, I read it a second time. And this time, some things about the parable started to show up that I hadn't noticed at first, that felt important. One is the power dynamic. Here, the powerful person, the king, the master, is having mercy on the powerless. Let's be honest, this is not usually the dynamic that we are asked to engage in. So often, it is the powerful person that we are asked to have mercy on so that they, purified by our mercy, can maintain that power. The powerless person is the one who's usually asked to forgive. Just stop talking, right? Your reward will be in heaven. Now this makes sense because Jesus does this, right? Subverts the status quo there would be no reason for us to have a parable in which a powerless person had to forgive a powerful person because that's just called life, right? (laughs) We don't have the luxury of having mercy. We just have to accept oftentimes what the powerful have done to us, right? I don't get to choose whether or not to have mercy on the most powerful, on my abusers necessarily. So I would like to argue that this flipping of the script makes this parable not something that can be used to force anybody to forgive in cases of abuse, in cases of misconduct, in cases of exploitation, violence, and a whole litany of other injustices, as it often is. Forgive, 70 upon 70. The other thing that I noticed was what those who owed the debt did before they were either forgiven or not forgiven. Anybody, what did they do? They begged.
1: They fell to their
0: knees, and they begged for mercy. They didn't deny. They didn't make excuses. They didn't blame someone else. They didn't say, Oh, well, you're the wrong one. You haven't forgiven me yet. You haven't had mercy on me. Look at you! (laughs) They dropped to their knees and owned what they had done and begged for mercy. And then what did they say? Anybody remember? I will pay everything back. They committed to reconciliation. They committed to change. They committed to doing something to right the situation. First of all, let me just say, this is the appropriate way to respond when you have done harm. I'm just going to repeat that. Owning and committing to change. This is the appropriate way to respond when we have done harm. So often, this isn't what happens. Right? I want to go back to the story about my mom for a moment, and then I'm going to come back to this so often not being what happens. When my mom was approached by this person from my childhood church who said, I haven't forgiven, She was really upset and she came to me and she was like, do you think that that's true, Linda? Do you think that you haven't forgiven? And I said, mom, forgiven what? Right, this is a huge, massive movement. And it's built upon years upon years of global sexual and gender control, right? So if I were gonna be forgiving everyone involved in it, it would just be like a game of whack-a-mole. Like, what, what am I? Right? Like, like, is forgiveness even an appropriate term? I don't think so. Like, I, I don't really think about it that way. And I said, but if you do want to talk about forgiveness, Mom, just so you know, from our church, there have been a couple of people who have reached out and who have apologized. And you know who those people were? The little boys who grew up alongside me in this toxic system. Not a single leader. So, I don't feel like forgiveness was really, you know, part of the conversation for me, right? I feel like I needed something different than an apology. I feel like I need accountability. And until they hold themselves accountable, I have to continue to hold them accountable. And that means I have to keep talking. Sorry, Mom. (laughs) (laughs) I believe in forgiveness. I really do, but I believe that forgiveness, like everything, can be used for good and it can be used for evil. This is true of you know, all of our values. We can use anger for destruction, right? We can use anger for justice. We can use focusing on ourselves to be so selfish that we never think of others, or focusing on ourselves to take care of ourselves in a way that is imperative for us to ever be able to take care of others. I often think about the pride-humility dichotomy. You know, we learn that pride is bad and humility is good. Well, yeah, if you grew up with a lot of privilege, probably you should check your pride and embrace some humility. If you grew up being stepped on by society, you might want to do the opposite. Give humility a break and step into your pride. Spiritual teachings are complex, right? They're not simple, they're not basic, they're not supposed to be. That's why they're delivered in things like parables, and proverbs, and stories, and metaphors, things that can actually hold that level of complexity. But we often don't like complexity. It takes a long time, it's really hard, you have to think about it, you have to feel it, you have to put it in context. So we just strip the spiritual teachings of all the context and complexity, and we distill it down to what we think is the most basic premise, and then we layer that basic premise over the way that we already look at the world, because that's the easy, automatic thing to do. And in the process, sometimes we end up taking something that was meant to subvert and using it to cement. Very often, I feel like that's what happens with some of these values, including forgiveness. So as I was going through this, I thought to myself, I got to this point in the sermon, (laughs) and I said, I have not um, provided any answers (laughs) for anybody, including myself, on this subject. And it was uncomfortable because the reality is is the way that I usually hear about forgiveness is pretty clear. We hear that forgiveness is a magic bullet for freedom. You forgive so you can be free. But the reality is, is it's so much more complex than that. You know, it's possible that, yes... Some of us do need to forgive. Maybe someone did come to us and owned what they did and committed to change, and they have found freedom through apology, freedom through owning what they did, freedom through committing to change, and that we also need to step into a new space. Or maybe not. Oftentimes, the people who we want to own don't. So how do you find freedom then? So there are some creative ways that people do this. I'll just throw out there. Mm-hmm. I feel like these are ways that I have been navigating through a lot. One is, you can actually create an apology. There's a book called The Apology by Eve Ensler, where she actually, at the age of 65, finally was able to write the apology that her father, who abused her his entire life, never wrote her. It's a book-length apology that he wrote her, that she wrote for him. So that she could find the freedom that she paved a pathway toward. It doesn't work for everyone. Sometimes people find someone else. It's not the person who directly hurt them, it's someone else, the person who allowed it to happen, the person who didn't believe them. There are sometimes others with whom we can have the kind of healthy reconciliation. Sometimes that person is ourselves. Sometimes it's us we need to forgive. I feel this way a lot. I look back at situations and I go, why didn't I have my back? And can I forgive myself for that? And can I trust that I'm not going to do wrong by myself again next time? so that I don't have to be beholden to this feeling of being bound by this, right? So I want to ask you some questions today, since I'm not leaving you with answers. I want to leave you with questions. The first is, do you need to forgive? I'm assuming, by the way, that many of you have had a particular situation rise in your mind. Do you need to forgive in that situation to find freedom? And if so, who? Or is it not really about forgiveness, right? Like this conversation that I had with my mom. Is it about something else? Is what you need a witness to find freedom? Someone who can just really hear you and see you. Or maybe a cloud of witnesses which is what I needed when I wrote this book. It was to have the whole world know, if anybody who would listen, what was going on. Or is what you need to find freedom justice? To know that others won't be hurt the way that you were hurt? Or is what you need to find freedom apology? By which I mean, do you need to apologize? To claim your part in something. To commit to doing different. Because we have all been harmed, and we have all done harm. I have messy situations in my life where, in one situation, I had someone else who needed to forgive to me, or needed to apologize to me, and in another, almost the exact same thing where I needed to be the one to apologize. I want you to hold this moment in your life that that surfaced if one surfaced. And with it, I want you to hold the complexity of these questions, right? We're gonna go into a moment of silence soon. And in that moment of silence, I'm gonna open with a prayer in which I ask God to speak so that you don't have to do all the work of navigating the complexity alone. Right? Your your job is to sit with that complexity and trust that God is speaking. So if everyone could just close their eyes. God, it's hard to do this work. To understand how to move forward in these messy, complex situations where nothing is simple. I pray that you would speak with us in this moment as we sit with these questions. I pray that you would give us the strength to trust what is coming up either now or what comes up to us in the middle of the night, where suddenly things become clearer to us for a moment, just a moment. Give us the strength to trust you in the complexity. Amen.